So I want to just recap where we are in our in our journey and 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 and, and forge ahead today as well. Um, we're talking about the idea of the relationship the man has with God, and I say relationship because the Jewish perspective of faith is not about it being merely an intellectual principle. It is that as well. But if that's where it stops, there's a problem. We always talk about taking what you know and putting it into practice. Our faith, our emuna, is demonstrated by the way we act, the way we behave. We behave differently. We are cognizant, we are aware of a reality that changes the way we act. And that's what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is an action that we do because God tells us to do it. Yes, you're right. We may have done it otherwise as well. True. But as Jews, we always look towards doing the Almighty's will because that kind of transports us into an alternate universe, so to speak. A universe where there is this entity that to us, in our physical universe, we can't see and interact with, but there's this entity that's real and therefore it moderates our behavior. I always give this example, not always, this is the first time I'm giving an example, but I've thought of this example before. So, you know, um, imagine you're at, the, you're at the red light, right? There's a red light in front of you, and there's a cop right behind you. Why don't you go through the red light? Huh? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's kind of, it's dangerous, but you see there's no one coming from either side. You can see. Yeah, but the thing is like this. It's it's so real, right? You know, it's so immediate. You know the repercussions are so real. It's not a theoretical thing at all, right? In our Judaism, we're trying to achieve that. I know this is the negative perspective, uh, but we're trying to achieve uh, a reality wherein this existence, this spiritual existence is, is just as real. You know, so for someone who... who you know, for someone who really has these high levels of faith, to them to sin is as ludicrous as it would be for any one of us to drive through a red light with a cop behind him. Why would you do that? It's, it's so patently uh, foolish to do that. You know, but to us, it's, it's, is it a cop? I don't know. It's, it's kind of one of those Cran Victorias. Is it really a cop? You know, there's no lights anywhere. You know, sometimes the lights kind of... You know, the, the, there's no cameras anywhere. Oh, I don't know, there's no one around. You know, that, that, that's kind of our perspective, you know. But the, but, but the reality is, is that the Almighty is as real as anything that we can. There's much more real than the cop, right? The cop, you can kind of wheel and deal in, whatever. You didn't see, I'm a little, a little colorblind, whatever. You can't sugar talk and sweet talk the Almighty out of something. Right? The Almighty is real. This is real. But for us, it's hard for us to have the perspective. And that's our lifelong goal. Our lifelong goal is to become people that see the world with a spiritual lens. You know, we're the ones who, in the physical world, can live with the alternative reality here. And to have that reality, when we do a mitzvah, is a tremendous... If we, could, if we really believed when we were praying that we were talking to God, that would be un- unbelievable. Like, we really believe that. And not mind-wandering or, you know, what's going to have for lunch... You know, what's going to be, what, looking around at other people. If we really believe we're talking, think about that. What, what an experience that would be. And that's just kind of the entry point to Jewish faith. It's like when you do a mitzvah, you think about God. And then you move higher and you're like, it's not just when you do a mitzvah, it's your whole life. Like you're, you know, you're, even when you're not doing a mitzvah, you're thinking about the opportunities 
to do mitzvahs because that is, you know, that's that's the most important thing. You know, it's 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 a certain recognition at all times that uh, it's a certain just life attitude, wherein like that's what you're pursuing because that's important, and you don't have to remind yourself sometimes. You know, to us. When, when we pray, we kind of have to push ourselves towards this reality. Okay, this is real. And we have to, uh, and then and your mind wanders, you kind of kind of bring it back. Right? If you were really talking to the president, you wouldn't have to say, oh, this is the president, and, right? Politics aside, right, of course. Um, but this is the president, and this is the Oval Office, and this is all real, and, right? No, you don't have to do that because you're in the Oval Office, right? You don't have to remind yourself. It's so real, right? We could get to that as well with God that we don't have to say, oh, remember, think about this. You know, we're, we're, we're talking to God now. It, it's just that's what you're actually doing. Uh, and where we left off last week is that there's a nice side benefit uh, to uh, this ascension in our relationship with God is that the, when we upgrade the level of relationship, he in turn upgrades his relationship with us. The Torah describes us as the children of God. Banim atem Hashem Okay, Not in the theological kind of Christian way, of course, right? The Almighty loves us. The Almighty loves us like a parent loves a child. And what does a parent want for the child? Everything, right? The best, the success, the happiness, health, right? That's what the that's what the Almighty wants for us, right? But the, does the Almighty always treat us like a child? We treat him like a dad. He treats, treats us like a child. That's the reality. We treat him like some idea. Then, yeah, theoretically, they, they are my children. But theoretically, the children doesn't mean you pony up the cash, right? You know, why 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 are we tending to our children and not to the neighbor's children? I was say that's an interesting thing because when you think about what you really want for your children, like what you really want is to instill the values in, in the, of God. You know, mm-hmm. you want to still so if you think about it like that. You know, you just really um, mm-hmm. you're not trying to like please. Well, and you also don't want to spoil them, right? So sometimes, like, oh, if God was my dad, I, where's all the cash? Where's the beamers? Right? Where's the dub? Where's where's you know? Where's all my money? You know, where's where's my down payment? Right? Uh, but a, a, a smart, responsible parent doesn't want to spoil their kids either, right? Wants to moderate them, kind of. You know, you want them to have a good life, but to play tennis all day or to play video games all day, you know. And that's what we're doing, really. You know, we're playing the proverbial video games with. Ignoring the other realm, the spiritual realms, which is, you know, you as a parent, you want your child to be productive and be, you know, and, 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 and make an impact, be impactful to the world. And, to ha- you know, to, and to have a life where hopefully bring you some grandkids, right? Wouldn't that be nice, right? And then if you see your kids just playing video games, but he's having a good time. They're having a good time. You want your kids to have a good time, right? So what's the problem? They're 26, 28, and still playing video games all day. There's a lot of people in America doing that, by the way. And in the world, for that matter. Well, do we want that from our kids? But they're having a good time. A lot of kids are making a lot of money playing video games. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some, some, so maybe that's different, but I, I assure you most of them are not. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably one in... 1500 I'm sure um, so so but is this a productive way that you want your like this is this is what you envision for your kids and then they say oh I want you to go to school but school what do you mean I, I did 12 years of school now and then grad school you know and to have to pay off loans and to have to work really hard but we do want we kind of want that for our kids so maybe the money also wants us to work hard huh is that possible 
but Manny wants us to work hard as well. But when we upgrade the way we relate to God, he upgrades the way he relates to us. So last week we gave the example of, uh, of um, we gave one example, we gave another example this week. The Talmud talks about going to the doctor, right? So there's actually a rabbi who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. His name is Robert Greenblatt. Okay? And he is in charge. Well, he's in charge. He's the, 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 the expert, the national or international expert on doing gittin, on doing divorce documents. Right? Because it's a very complicated thing uh, when you have a, a, a divorce and there's a special document you have to write. It has to be written in a special way. And it's, everything's very, you know, it's, you know it's, there's a lot of subtleties that need to be addressed. And uh, so he comes and he flies all around the country doing divorce documents. And he flies, this is a man who's 91 or 92 years old, okay? He flies to the Southwest by himself, takes his bags, he rents a car, he drives for like hours, he drives from Tulsa to Dallas and from Houston, to, and he drives over, the guy is incredible, okay? He's incredible, unbelievable. He's on his phone, he says, you know, he's just doing stuff, unbelievable, okay? And he has never in his life visited the doctor, never in his life. And you know why? Because in the 1930s, when he was a young man, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook, the chief rabbi of Israel at the time, said, I'm going to give you a blessing, you have a long life. And he said, good enough for me. You know, he's been, and he's, you look at him, the guy's like, he somehow turned out the clock. He's energetic, he, he's, he's sharp like a tack, you know, could you, who, which 90-year-old person, do, maybe there are some exceptions, but that, that like, overnight, you know, instead of, like, you know, instead of taking a flight from Houston to New Orleans to the next yet, he would just drive there instead. Six hours, no big deal, by himself, you know. Can you imagine, like, your 90-year-old, 90-year-old parent or grandparent, I'll drive myself to New Orleans. Nah. It's just unbelievable. So what does the Talmud say? The Talmud says is that I, really, people don't even go to the doctor. Your body, the mighty kind of orchestrates your body should work fine. Why do? Why does our body malfunction? Well, yes, of course. So if you mistreat it, then we're asking for it. But, well, coffee's very good now, they say, right? So the Talmud says is that the only reason why people need to go to the doctor is because they go to the doctor. Theoretically, just for us, this is going to be theoretical. But this is the point I'm trying, I'm trying to convey. Theoretically, who is the best doctor out there? The Almighty, of course. Right? The, the architect of the infrastructure knows how it works the best, right? And uh, yet, we are not kind of, we, 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 go, we go to the doctor, right? So what are we saying there? For, like, we're kind of having this moment where we're saying, I believe the doctor has something that the Almighty doesn't have, right? Even though we're not thinking of that in those terms, but we're actually behaving that way. Okay, so you want the doctor to be in charge of your medicine? Let the doctor be in charge of your medicine. You only need to go to the doctor because you go to the doctor. Now, I'm not advising people to cancel their insurance, which, by the way, you'll get a fine for nowadays as well. So that's not my, my point. My point is that this is a theoretical idea, is that if we are really at the point where the reality of God is so tangible, so palpable, so real, and we really didn't feel a need to, to us it would be nonsensical to go to the doctor, then we wouldn't need to go to the doctor. For us, unfortunately, it is sensical to go to the doctor. I don't know if that sentence makes any sense, right? It, it might make sense for us because we're not quite there. But theoretically, we're there. now I want to point out that in the times of the Talmud, uh, that was true as well. 
This is found in the Talmud. So it's not like we say, oh, we're the first generation to reject real faith. No, of course not. But the point is the lesson, the lesson that we learn is that there is this idea of someone saying, I truly live the life, right? And I don't, for a second, question the Almighty's control over everything. And therefore, going to a doctor is assuming or is granting uh, expertise to someone other than the Almighty, and that doesn't make sense to me. But there is this idea. We're not there yet, guys, okay? But, but, but the point is, is that we upgrade our relationship with God. He says, okay, I'll take care of you. That's the point. That's referenced in this last week's Parsha. Go ahead. <clears throat> and I didn't come up with this in my from the commentary you guys sent out. Mentioned that God says, follow all my ordinances and laws, and you will not have any of the health issues that they, people had in Egypt. Uh, and basically the commentary was is that most people <coughs> pray when they get sick. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, here's your preventative medicine. Yeah. Follow the Torah, and you will never get sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like that, but I want to say something even even different, right? What, um, what the about prayer? So I might have mentioned we talked about prayer. Is there's a debate amongst the commentaries whether or not there's a mitzvah to pray every day, or there's a mitzvah to pray in a time of great need, time of distress, and time of danger. Um, the idea being that um, one of the opinions is that. It's not a mitzvah to pray every day, but when you're in danger, when you're in the proverbial foxhole, right? Or, God forbid, there's some accident, right? When you really need the Almighty's intervention, then then there's a mitzvah to pray. And our attitude to that would be, uh, that's not fair, right? You know, know, you're taking advantage, so to speak, of God, right? Suddenly you show up with needs. Suddenly you have needs, you want to pray. But it's actually the opposite. It's true. For where we are holding... When there is a crisis, then and we really believe in God, then we have to reach for the red telephone. We have to. And you're saying something much higher, is that, that really we should be on the red telephone every day. But for us, when we have an emergency, right, at that point, right, it's real for us to pray. So when it's real for us to pray, then we better seize that. Because then if we don't pray in the time of great need, what does that say? That even the time where I'm pushed into the corner, I'm not. I don't believe in God. But don't you think? I, I mean, I feel guilty doing that. Sometimes. No, but it's the, the, we don't feel guilty. Absolutely not. What's the first of all? The mind does not have uh, limited resources, right? Correct. But but when you if if right, we feel guilty because that's what you would do with other people. Oh, suddenly you need something, you yeah, come to exactly. me. But that's not the way the mind works. Mind is not petty like that in that way, right? So if if. If you need something, somebody wants to give it to you, right? Somebody wants you to call out to them. Now, the only reason why we even have, well, the only reason why we even have, sure, it's not mine. It's not mine. Yeah. The only reason why, why do you mind give us troubles to begin with? Why does he want to give us troubles to begin with? It's only a means to awaken us, right? So the man wants to awaken us, and then we say, "Oh, he woke. He the man awakened us, but now, oh, now I can't reach out to the Almighty." Sorry about that. What? <laughs> 
gray Toyota. That would be the rabbi's car. Right by the door. Most of them eventually go. It's not an issue. What I mean is, it's almost like a rainy day or friend that you got, right? You never call him and you don't need anything. But that doesn't apply to. It doesn't apply. That doesn't apply. Because it means what the Almighty, the way the Almighty works is that he's going to kind of goad us to opportunities to have a relationship with him. That's what life's all about. Life's all about is achieving this amuna. And. If we don't have it during regular times, then he is going to kind of compel us to have it. And that's the whole point of your trouble is that the Almighty wants to reach out to you. Which, and the reason why we feel kind of weird, this rainy friend, this rainy day friend, the reason why we feel weird is because, and hear me for a second, okay? We think that these circumstances are constant, so to speak means the only reason why we would say that we don't want to reach out to God when we forget about him the rest of the time, you know, is because we think that what happened to us now, well, that's not his doing, right? So therefore, you know, you only reach out to me when you need me. And you need me because of something else. When in reality, the Almighty is kind of nudging you. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's, he's elbowing you in your ribs, and he's trying to reach out to you. And the whole point of the tribulation that you're having is that you call out to him. And he's doing it specifically for that purpose. So it's not like that that's kind of existing on its own plane, so to speak, and there's the other relationship that you have with God that's, that's kind of independent of that. No, it's all, that, it's all cohesive. It's all, you, it's, all, it's all one and the same, okay. if that makes any sense. Yes, yes. Uh, and it's, it's actually, you can consider it as, like you said, Kind of uh, Hashem awaking you. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah, that, it was. Um, someone once said this this uh, analogy of uh, I've said it before, but a while back uh, of a guy who um, is stuck, locked out of his room. So he's in his room in the Empire State Building, and he's locked out, and he doesn't have a phone, and he has no way of contacting anyone, and he's locked in his room. And the only way, and you know, and the, the only way for him to contact is to go out to the balcony and to start hollering at passerby. So he goes out and he's on the seventieth floor. He starts hollering and no one hears him. And so then later, and he, you know, he knows his wife is probably worried about him. And what's what's he going to do? So he says he starts he'll start throwing down money to the bottom, and see if the passerby pick her up. And they'll say, oh, where's the money coming from? And they'll notice him and they'll rescue him. So he's throwing out coins and everyone's just scooping it up and putting them in the pocket. He says, it's probably not enough money, right? He throws dollar bills and fives and tens and Benjamins and everyone just scoops it up and looks around and just runs away. Obviously, it doesn't work. So he does, instead, he goes to the potted plant and takes a bunch of gravel and throws it down on people. And like, people are like, whoa, what's going on over there? And he gets rescued. And the point is that the Almighty wants our attention. Now, why, of course, is for our own good? We'll get to that a little bit later. The Almighty wants our attention, and he gives us good stuff, and good stuff, and we're like, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. You know, we just scoop it up in our pockets, and, and we don't even look up to say, where did this come from? And then, when we just, doesn't matter what, what goodness the Almighty inspires us with, and, 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 and endows us with, we don't, we don't notice him. Then it's okay, if that's not, not going to notice me like that, I'll take some potted plants, and... The, and, and throw them at them and then 
when, what happens when someone has tragedy? The first question is, where was God, right? What, why did God do this, right? Suddenly, it's just we're, we're kind of wired to question God when bad things happen. But to ignore God when good things happen. And when good things happen, we're brilliant. You know, we're it's just, you know, just the best businessmen out there. When bad things happen, oh, we have these crises of faith. That's just the way things are, right? We're, we, we, it's much easier for us to question God when bad things happen than to thank God when good things happen. So if the money wants us to have faith, the money wants us to have this relationship where God is real. I'll say, so he'll maybe throw the coins and the pennies and the nickels and dollars and, and even better things, and we ignore him. Then he has to nudge us, right? He's got to elbow us. And the whole purpose of this interaction is that we can achieve what is, it's ultimately about, and that is this perspective of Ramuna. So when someone has bad things and doesn't call out to God, well, then they're missing at the point, even though we kind of feel a little bit weird because in the other areas of our lives, you know, that rainy day friend that Vitaly is speaking about is someone who's not responsible for why it's a rainy day, right? I don't control the weather. So therefore, why are you coming? You're only coming to me when the weather's bad. But if you, your friend did control the weather and they did the weather only as a means, kind of in the uh, Truman Show, right? They're manipulating the weather specifically for you, right? Then maybe it would make sense to reach out to them, and that's the whole point. Um, I had another thing to add to this idea of us being real with the Almighty and being responded in kind. Um, there was this, allegedly, there was a story that was kind of a little bit relevant to what happened last week about the lottery. So I had this in my notes here. I talked about the lottery, but we didn't get to it last week. Um, so there was this guy who said, oh, he's having a really hard time financially, paying for his family. And he went to the rabbi and he says, okay, I have a solution. I'll play the lottery. And the Almighty loves me, right? So if I believe wholeheartedly that the Almighty loves me and is going right, to take care of me, will I win the lottery? He says, absolutely. So he goes, he buys a lottery ticket, and the drawing is in a couple of days, and the rabbi, a couple of days later, a day or two before the, law, the drawing, he calls him in, he says, okay, I'm so convinced that you have the winning ticket, I would want to buy it, back, buy it from you for half the jackpot. The guy says, sure, of course, <laughs> right? A $2 ticket and half the jackpot, who wouldn't do that? So he says, okay, sure, it's a deal. He's like, ah, if you really believe that it was worth the jackpot, you would never sell it for half the jackpot. So you obviously don't really believe that it's worth the jackpot. So you're, so you're going to lose. <laughs> if we really believed that we were holding the winning ticket, you wouldn't sell it, right? After the, would you sell it after the drawing? Right, but that's not the way it always was. It used to be there was only one winner. But, I mean, what, what changes before and after the drawing? Certainty. Well, certainty for, for in what realm? But not for God. Right. So if you're working with this premise that, that, that God, so to speak, is going to give you the winning ticket, then it doesn't matter what the drawing actually has happens. But if you're saying, oh, the drawing matters, what does that mean? The who doesn't matter? If that matters and God doesn't matter, then okay, God's not treating you. The dollar treat you in kind. You matter, but don't really matter. <laughs> that saying goes, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, that's that's also true, but that, that's a little bit of a different point. Is that the Almighty doesn't want us to just be comatose and say, "Feed me," right? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, that's 
Yes, of course not. That's obviously not. We're not trying to suggest that. And this is this lottery point is just illustrative of the idea. Um, but but th- this is the core insight: what's real for us and what's not real for us. And we start off life, and the only thing that's real for us is ourselves, is the world, is our needs. And we get bigger; our kind of sense of of reality expands, and we right. And all the things that we see, all the things we learn about, even we don't see them. Uh, but it's very hard for us to make God real because there's a limitation of what we can sense or what we can even define, um, or what we can kind of codify with regards to God. It's, it's an idea that while we know it's true, it's more theoretical. And the mission of all the mitzvahs and the purpose of all of Torah and the idea of tikkun olam, by the way, right? What does it mean, tikkun olam? It's a, a fixing the world. What's, what's wrong with the world? The world seems to function pretty nicely. Yeah, there's some tragedies, okay. But most of those are kind of in other countries, <laughs> right? It's wonderful, right? Yeah, it's wonderful until, until it's not wonderful. But even if it's wonderful, it's wonderful for us in what aspect of our reality? The only metric that ought to really matter, and indeed only the only metric that does matter, because the only metric that matters for, for, for forever is what's our relationship with God. That's the only metric that really matters. So how wonderful is it really? It's as wonderful as that metric is. It's being fulfilled. So tikkun olam means fixing the world. The world's broken because Everything that matters to humanity, to humans, or at least at the beginning, is really irrelevant. And the only thing that really does matter, we treat as being irrelevant. That's a broken world. We fix the world. How do you fix the world? How, how are we going to fix the world? The way we fix the world is via this process, by making the idea of God real. If the idea of God is real, then suddenly the world is not askew. It's not, it's not inverted. It's not upside down. It's real. You know? And we could kind of make present world mirror the other world with the entrappings, the, the, the fantasies of our Yetzirah don't, don't apply. Don't, the reason why we have this problem is because the Almighty kind of made us have this problem. Right? Because that's the, that's the conflict, that's the challenge. And the problem is, is, is personified by what we have is called the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah is this, I, I, this ability, this or this, not ability, but this, uh, this, um, uh, the, you know, this, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, and I apologize for that, <laughs> uh, this tendency, thank you, sorry. We have a tendency to overvalue things that are undervalued and disregard things that are valuable and that are important. And the things that are the only things that are important, the ones that we ignore, we say, ah, yeah, that's nice. We'll go to the synagogue and we'll do some religious activities and we'll fulfill our needs. And then we'll go back to our real life. And all the real life things are the things that don't matter once we're dead, right? So they, by definition, have a shelf life. By definition, everyone agrees that. There's no way to argue that. Yeah, you can pass it on to your kids, but you're just kicking the ball down the line, right? You're just kicking the can down the street. That's what you're doing. The only thing that really matters are the things that last beyond, that are linked to our soul, that are linked to God, that's not constrained by the, the, the limitations of this world. That's the only thing that matters. 
And our world doesn't value that because our world's broken. The Torah is the guidelines to fish in the world. That's what it means, fix in the world. The world's broken, we gotta fix it. We fix it, how do we measure our success and or failure of Tikkun Olam? By how society is upgrading up this ladder. So we start off with nothing, the world's all pagan, everyone's pagans, and then we introduce that they have gotten to the world. And then it makes sense. You know, there's some sort of penetration intellectually to these ideas. And that is just dramatic. And that's why Abraham's so significant. Because he's the one who kicked off this plan of Tikkun Olam. And we move, we move forward and we have the Torah. The Torah is the manual to do it all. And the Torah is difficult for us. You know why? Because it's in opposition to the way we're programmed. That's, that's why it's difficult. Every mitzvah in the Torah is a mitzvah which is counterintuitive with regards to our intuition of the Yitzvah. That's what mitzvahs are. And like, why are there so many difficult mitzvahs? A lot of things that we want to do, Torah says no. But why do we want to do them? Because they link us to this world. Because those are investments in a dying and depleting entity. But, but we feel driven to do it. And, and, that, and that's the challenge. And that's the Torah says, don't do it, you know, don't eat this and that. Well, does God really care what we eat? Is that really so important to God? And there's a lot of good questions like that. Is it really so important? Is it really so important? And if we ask the question, we miss the critical point of Torah and mitzvahs. It's not that we're trying to do what's right and avoid doing what's wrong. Well, yes, of course, that's true as well. But the point is it's trying to change the very value systems and the very af- affinities that we have in our lives. And our number one affinity we start off with is our body and the well-being of our body and our physical and material well-being. That's how we start off life. And if that's how we end off life, we have done nothing to fix the world. And the Torah is going to say, we have the idea of God, and it's, 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 we can prove it theoretically, we can talk about it intellectually, but if that's where it remains, we don't fix the world. The world still is broken as it was beforehand. And the Torah says, don't do all these physically rewarding activities. Don't do them. So am I trying to make us miserable? No. Am I trying to sober us from the delirium of the spell of the Yetzirah? Of, of this dogged focus of only caring about this world and the material and physical entities and elements of this world. That, that, that's what it is. We're all drunk. <laughs> I said last time we were insane. This time we're drunk. <laughs> you like drunk, by the way? Saying, hey, drunk has a good feeling. Well, yeah, but it's but some people go through their lives and every day, right? You know, it's and and we and the Torah is there to sober us up. And sobering up is not always fun. You know, when to, to, to go, we need to go to rehab. Torah is rehab. It's rehab. We're, we're, we're a bunch of drunkards. We're lowlifes. All of us. <laughs> oh, the rabbi told me today I'm a lowlife. I'm not going back. <laughs> you know? but, but, but that's the state of humanity. Humanity, and, and we're doing things that don't make any sense. And the Torah is trying to, uh, the, the Torah is trying to uh, bring us back to sanity. And that's not easy. That's not fun. And, and you, you'll talk to people 
uh, who have been addicts and have recovered, and none of them will describe their process to recovery as being very, very pleasant. Because we have dependencies. We have dependencies, and we have uh, you know, norms that we're used to, and we've got to change all that. You know, we, we, have to, we have to reinvent ourselves, and that's very difficult. We have to disavow things that we, that we have cherished. You know, we have to say goodbye to things that we like. It makes us feel so good. Yeah, but heroin's very deadly. And you could die. A lot of people die because of that. And what kind of life are you living? But it makes you feel good. So the, even if, this is the point back, back to Torah, even if all the mitzvahs of the Torah were all arbitrary, there's nothing really wrong about eating pork. Who cares, right? I really, let's, assume that, let's assume that that's correct. It's not correct, but let's assume it was correct. The Torah would still have tremendous lasting value. Because every time the Torah severs a link of our chain that binds us to planet Earth, to this world, to the physical and material existence that's passing and it's going to end when we die, every link that we sever to that, uh, to that bondage right, enables us more to connect spiritually. So even if it was all arbitrary, even if every mitzvah didn't really have anything to it, but so long as it severs a, a connection uh, uh, it, it loosens our bonds to the physical reality, but it opens up the possibility for the spirituality to take its place. Maybe we could look at the, at the, at the Torah as a, instructions for freeing ourselves of the bondages of addiction. And by the way, what, what, what does the uh, Mishnah say? You don't have a free man. There's no free man aside, aside, from, uh, aside from the man uh, who studies Torah. But wait a minute. Torah gives you so many restrictions, so many laws. You would seem to be less free. Yeah, you're less free because you're free. Like, I have less connections to, you know, to my captors. I'm less free. Yeah, it, yeah you are, actually. You know, what if freedom demanded... You know, certain responsibilities. I thought the guy says, I'm in prison. I'm, I'm in prison, but I, I, you know, I, I don't have to go to work. I, I don't have to go to work, right? I don't have to tone down my uh, vulgar talk, right? I can say whatever I want. I'm the freest person ever, right? Okay, so is that a good argument? Someone's in prison. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, but but there is there is a certain <laughs> argument that hey, I got my free food. I don't have to go to work like you guys. You wake up six in the morning and you go in traffic downtown. You deal with bosses and and conference calls. You're free. I'm free. None of that nonsense here in the prison. I don't have to moderate myself in any way. Is that really free? Well, to a certain extent, yes. But is that the kind of freedom that we want? No. So the Torah is saying, yes, we're going to tell you the things you can't do, right? But by doing that, you're freeing yourself from prison. By doing that, on the grand scale, who you are as a human fundamentally changes. You are no longer someone who is bound to behave a certain way, as the prisoner is, right? You can now live however you want to live. When we're bound to the physical material, we're addicted, we're not free. 
we might think we're free because we could do whatever we want, but, 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 but thinking you're free doesn't mean you're actually free. And if the Torah tells us don't do X, Y, or Z, it's difficult because it's difficult for us to change ourselves and reinvent ourselves. But by doing that, we expose ourselves to a whole other vista. And by the way, it's a lot more fun to be free in the free world than to be free in the prison world. Right? You could actually accomplish. You could have these more delicate pleasures that are not possible for someone in prison, even though today they make it kind of, I guess they make it a little better than it was in the past. But you know, I was going to say that you, can, you, know, you can't have the pleasure of children, but I think you kind of can, right? Get your conjugal, conjugal uh, visits. Um, but still, it's not, you know, there, there's a certain pleasure of, of, of watching your kids, you know, flourish and grow. and that's a, that's a certain pleasure. It may be also associated with a lot of pain. You know, but that's kind of what we find, that there's this pleasure that demands a lot of us, but that ultimately is the most rewarding. And that's what we want. And that's what we can only get if we free ourselves from prison. So, once we're at the point where the reality of God is ever-present, you know, we don't have to remind ourselves when we pray that we're talking to God. What else is there? How do we move up? So I want to look a little bit at a very interesting Talmudic piece that describes the, the deaths, the deathbed of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. We're going to talk about him again today as well. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, if you all remember, uh, a couple of years back we talked about, when we're doing some history discussion, we talk about the state of the Jews uh, in Jerusalem when they were under siege by the Romans. We get the Talmud talks a lot about this history because it's a very pivotal, very pivotal time in, 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 in Jewish history. Uh, a lot of infighting, a lot of different factions. But the leader of Jerusalem was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan, son of Zakkai. And uh, he is the one who negotiates with Vespasian uh, to, we'll see a little, bit, a, l- a little bit later on. But either way, we are, uh, uh, the Talmud talks about what happens, what happened when he was about to die. He's about to die. What happens when the, when the rabbi's about to die? All the students come visit him and, uh, and they find him and he's crying. I just turned off. I apologize for that. So they come to visit him. And what, what, what would you imagine? We find a lot of, there's a lot of instances in the Talmud where the rabbi's about to die and the students come and visit him. So they come to visit him and they see that he's crying. I'll read to you what it says over here. And they said to him, the student said to him, the candle of Israel, the strong hammer. Why are you crying? You know, you're Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai. You're, you're, you're one of the most important, influential figures in all of Jewish history. What, what are you worried about? You're about to die. Okay, well, what's so bad about that? So he says to them like this. He says, imagine if they were bringing me in front of a king of flesh and blood, which is the way we talk about humans. Humans are flesh and blood. What happens if they're taking you now to meet the king of flesh and blood? And what, what, what kind of constitutes a king? You know, what, what are the uh, elements that describe a king of flesh and blood? He's here today and he's gone tomorrow. There's, there's term limits. And if the term limits are not bound by the Constitution, certainly bound by his lifespan, right? 
Today he's around and tomorrow he's in the grave. And what happens if he gets angry at me? His anger won't last forever. What happens if he, if he punishes me? It doesn't last forever. What happens if he kills me? It doesn't last forever. And you know what? Good sweet talking. You have a teen. You have someone a human, right? You could say, well, you, you could cajole them, right? You could, be, you could talk to them and negotiate with them. You could also bribe them, right? So many ways, so many reasons to not be worried. But I'll be terrified. I'll be shaking. I'll be crying. To bring you in front of a king and your life's, you know, what's going to be with you is really at stake. Who wouldn't be terrified? But look, the flesh and blood, they're here today, they're dead tomorrow. Their term doesn't last forever. They get angry, doesn't last forever. You can negotiate. You can bribe. A lot of ways to get out. And he says to them, now, I'm about to go in front of the king of all kings, the Almighty, that it, who is alive and exists forever. If he gets angry at me, it lasts forever. If he punishes me, it lasts forever. If he kills me, it lasts forever. I can't possibly sweet-talk him and bribe him. And not only that, he says there's two ways to... I don't know which way they're bringing me. Should I not be, should I not be crying? Should I not cry, be crying? And that's a good argument, right? But that, he's making our argument. His students, to them, they're like, you know, you, you, you live a life well lived. But to him, he's really being marched, right, to a king. And how terrifying is that? And not only that, he, to, he tell, what does he tell him? He tells them, I'm not just being marched to any king. I'm the king of all kings. I'm being marched in front of God. And to him, it's more terrifying to go in front of God than it is to go in front of a, uh, of a human king. And then it concludes. So they say to him, okay, uh, Rebbe, our teacher, you're about to die. Give us a blessing. Listen to his blessing. What does he tell him? He says that may be the will of the Almighty that the, your fear of heaven should be like your fear of flesh and blood. You should be as scared of God as you are scared of your fellow man. They say to him, maybe he's a little senile, right? Did he lose it? They say to him, the students say to him, wait a minute, we should be fearful of heaven as we are of man? He says, yes. Why? Because when someone sins, they say, oh, make sure no one's watching. Okay, so let's unpack this. What do we see? We see Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai is terrified to die. He's terrified to die because he knows he's about to be marched in front of a king. And if it was just a king, he would, he would be crying. But now he's going to the king who's not bound by term limits, who's not bound by any time, right? Who, if he kills you, you're dead forever. You can't negotiate. You can't try to, you know, sweet-talk your way out of it. He's even more scared. And what does he tell his students? He tells his students, you should be as fearful of God as you are fearful of man. He's demanding that maybe your level of faith of a Muna that you should strive for is parody. Let God be as real as your fellow man. Right? Be as fearful of, 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 of God as you were as you would be a fellow man. Perhaps in our vernacular. Be as fearful of God as you are of the cop who's right behind you. Don't be more fearful. It's just it's, it's equal. It's parody. Now, of course, we know that God is more powerful than the cop, right? Broader jurisdiction, right? You can't negotiate with him. You can't sweet talk to him. You can't bribe him, even though it probably would be a bad idea to bribe the cop. But I guess it depends where we are. But 
Yeah. <clears throat> but for us, he's telling his students, yeah, we're, we take people really seriously. It's very serious to say, you know, there's a cop behind me, I'm going to go through the red light anyhow. You know, for us, when God tells something, it's a red light. And, it's a, and, and strive to achieve that, attaining the reality of that, you know, trepidation as you would have if the cop is behind you and there's a actual red light in front of you. Obviously for us, that's maybe a lot to ask for. Yeah, but to them, he's, 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 you know, he's kind of opening up the path for an, an, another level of faith where God and the, real, the spiritual reality is as real as the physical reality. It's as real. And the terror that we would have of... I actually did this, a prank on someone recently. I don't know if I should say this, but I'll tell you anyhow, right? All caution into the wind, right? So I... Um, it was late at night. And uh, you know when there's a green light going straight and there's a left, red arrow making a left turn? And you know, like, you know, there's no other cars coming the other way, right? The only other cars are the ones coming the opposite direction. And you look as far as the eye can see, there's no cars behind you. So I'm, I'm there at night, there's no one around. Well, I'm saying it was like maybe 10 o'clock at night, so it happened to be a police station right across the street. And I'm like, I was driving with my wife, and I'll pray to her, right? So like, uh, am I, how, how am I admitting that? I mean, we're friends, right? Okay. Plus your wife will already know, right? Yeah. So, so I'm in the left lane. I make a left turn into our neighborhood. And it's a red light. I'm like, I'm going. So I made a left turn. And my wife's like, ah, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, no, there's a cop behind me. Uh, <laughs> it was so not <laughs> It was so not nice. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, there was no cop behind me. Oh, was pranking her. Yeah, it was a prank. Uh, well, you you weren't know? really getting up. Huh? No, really really turn. no, I did turn. Yeah. But there wasn't a cop. But there was no cop. Yeah, the joke huh? Is this your conscience bothering you? Uh, no, I don't know. What study do you But my point is like this, is that... The fear of the cop, the lights going on, and the cop, like, that's so visceral. It's so real to us. Imagine if someone's, you know, if we, if we did the same thing with our relationship with God. It's a story I'll think about. I just thought about it right now. There was, um... <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Um... There was a story about uh, one of the. There was a, a great Torah scholar, who was, um, who was uh, during World War II. Try to get the details correctly. He had managed to escape, and he was in Turkey. He was in Istanbul, or Constantinople, whatever they call it. Call it. And he was staying. He was one of the f- famous rabbis. So therefore, he was staying by the guy's house. And uh, there was a whole question: Was there any kosher food? And this person was you know, to him. He was very fastidious about making sure that it's 100% kosher. The only thing he was able to eat was a certain kind of rice. And then, after he had 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 his lunch, someone came to him and said, well, there might be a question as to whether or not that rice was kosher with all the stringency. I don't remember the details. 
So he had that, and he basically stuck his finger down his throat and just made himself vomit it all out. And like, you know, to us, that sounds like a, like a gnarly story, right? But imagine, <clears throat> imagine someone told you that you just consumed poison. Would you not do the same? Take a plunger, right? I don't know, right? Drink water and then like, uh, like that in the toilet, right? You That's what you would do, right? But to us, like, come on, you, had, you, had, you ate the rice already. You didn't do it on purpose, right? Man, maybe kosher. Like, that's, that's what we're, we would say, right? And I would probably say the same. But imagine if, to you, the thought of eating kosher, unkosher, was equivalent to eating poison. Wouldn't you do the same? Well, what if someone said, well, I'm not sure if it was poison or maybe it wasn't poison. Would you take a chance? No, you'd still do that, right? So to him, if it's kosher, if it's not kosher, to them, it, that, to, the, to him, the equation is really, is it, is it poison or not poison? So what's the first thing you do if you're not sure if you consume poison? Think of your own throne, and it's, it's spell it all out, all over the guy's stuff, right? That's, that's, what you would, you, that's what you would do, right? Now, to us, we're not quite there yet, because they're not kosher is not poison. You know, for us. But for him, it was. Because... You know, maybe maybe it was the, even a higher level. Who knows? But the idea of of, of taking parity of this f- physical and spiritual reality being equal, uh, that uh, th- you know, that to us is kind of hard to imagine. But it's possible for it to imagine someone else having that. Yeah, it would make sense, right? Imagine you really believe that something that's not kosher, right? It's as real, it's as visceral, it's as palpable, it's as you know, just true. And terrifying that, 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 that that's how you would behave. What, where does God come into play? Where is Hashem? What do you mean? But, but you're taking things into your own hands by, by expelling it. What, but you can know for sure where there's, I mean, wouldn't you? The yeah, that's, that's true. But you don't know for sure if you consume poison, you also expel it out, right? Mm-hmm. So to, if, you, if you were to view kosher, non-kosher as poison, if you were to review that, then that's how you would behave. So it just means, my point is, this is not a lesson about what to do when you consume food that's not, that maybe is kosher, maybe is not kosher, you don't know. That's not the point. The point is, what does it demonstrate about his view on non-kosher food? That, that's the point. Uh, it's just, when you are to upgrade that to a certain reality, then that's how you would behave. And I'm not saying we should start with that behavior. We have to start with that reality first. Once you have that reality, then you'll have the behavior as well. So to us, it's obviously, you know, we're kind of getting into the, you know, if, if this is what Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai advise his students, it's very unlikely we could ever reach that. I think we, could, we can potentially still reach that. Um, is it likely? Who knows, maybe. Um, but this is an idea that at, at a certain point, we have a reality that's our physical reality. And that's real, and the table's real, and you people are sitting here, and, you know, that's real. And the spirituality is as real, and it's 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 you know it's it's not any less real, and that's how you treat the world, and that's how you interact with the world, and that's your perspectives on the world. It's possible to reach that. Um, but is there any more? Well, what would be the next logical step? So if that's number number six where sixth level of faith where the faith or the spiritual and the physical are equal what would be the next level where where the spiritual 
is even higher, is more real. So when I see you guys, I see more your neshamas than I see your, your, your goof, so to speak. I see more your soul than I see your body. And if you actually dial back here, Rabbi Yochanan Metzake, what did he say when he told them? He said, I'm terrified of meeting God. Why? Because I would be terrified of meeting your king. And a king is not quite as powerful as God. And he lists seven ways he's not as powerful, right? What does he say? Number one, he's here today, he's gone tomorrow. If he gets angry at me, number two, it doesn't last forever. If he punished me, it doesn't last forever. If he kills me, it doesn't last forever. And I, you know, and, and, I, you know, and I could sweet talk him and I could bribe him. Six things he says that are leniencies with regards to meeting a, a human king and those are stringencies with regards to God. So what does that mean? He's more terrified of encountering God than he would be of encountering a human king. So for our example, if, you know, if we have a certain trepidation when we, if we were to talk to the president... then what Rabbi Yochanan ben is telling his students, try to achieve the same trepidation when you talk to God. But he himself would be even more afraid because uh, it's on a higher level than the physical reality. And there's an amazing story about him uh, that bears out this, uh, this principle. Uh, the Talmud tells uh, of Jerusalem under siege and Jerusalem being just embroiled by various uh, sects that are vying for control of the city. Uh, and it's so bad that the food storages, and the grain, the grain and the wood storages that would have subsisted the city for 21 years were burned, not by the Romans, but by the Jews themselves. By a faction of the Jews that says, let's fight the Romans. Let's go out there and fight them which historically is actually a very bad idea um, because the Romans are you know, more masters at warfare, right? But they, they did that. And what happens? You know, you have, a, you have a siege now and there's mass starvation in the city. And then you have the people foraging for food outside and when the Romans capture them and they kill them in the most torturous and brutal and cruel ways, right? Most of a crucifixion. So you have a city between three and 500 people a day are being crucified outside of the city by the Romans. It's a terrible, terrible reality. And Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai is the leader of the Jews, of the kind of the mainstream Jews within the city, what's known today as the Pharisees. And he realizes the end is, is near and he wants to go and negotiate with the general, Vespasian, uh, outside of the city. And he goes, and they have to find a way to kind of convince the because they wouldn't let him go, because the other factions would say, you can't let him go. So they put out a rumor that he's sick, and he's ill, and he's dying. And then they put in a rumor that he's dead. And they put him in a box, and they're going and burying him outside the city. By the way, the Romans would let the Jews go out and bury their dead, and let them go back in, which I think was kind of common in battle practices. You know, there's a cessation of, of, of battle when people are burying their dead. So they take Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai and they're carrying him. Everyone's crying. It's a disaster. We lost Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai. He's dying. We're going to go bury him. And 
they get to the city, and the Jews in the city, well, we're not so sure he's dead. The, the kind of the other faction, the, uh, the, you know, the more of like, uh, uh, you know, the more excited faction that wants to fight. They say, you know, we, we, we got to, how do we know he's dead? So, you know, maybe he's alive. He's just going to talk to them. So they say, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, we actually want to take a sword and take it, put it through the coffin and to just make sure he's actually dead. They're like, are you really going to do that? You're going to take the, ra- the, 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 the rabbi's body and just going to poke it with holes? That's not the way we behave. They say, okay, fine, let him, they let him go. He gets out. He obviously, once he's out of the, out of the, once he's out of the, um, the city, he gets out of the box and he goes to the tent of his mansion. And the Talmud describes what happens when he meets them. And he says to them as follows, Shalom Alecha Malka. Peace be unto you, O king. And Vespasian tells him, by the way, you're liable to be executed for two reasons. First of all, it's treasonous to call someone who's not the emperor to call him king. Right? Because he's just a general. So how are you calling him king? That's number one. Number two, why did you come to me now? Well, why did you not come to me till now? If I was a king, why did you come to me till now? So he tells him, the reason why I wasn't able to come is because I couldn't able to come. I wasn't, I wasn't able to come, so I didn't come. But you say you're not a king. I say you are a king. Why? And he quotes to him a verse. The verse says, verse in the Torah, in the scripture says, which means, and Lebanon will fall uh, in, the hands of the, uh, to, uh, in the hands of the mighty. And Lebanon is always a reference to the temple, and the mighty is a reference to a king. Thus, says Rabbi Yochanan and Zachary to Vespasian, you are a king. And the postscript to the story is, as they were talking, a messenger comes from Rome and tells him that the, king, that the emperor died, and the people of the Senate nominated you, to assume emperorship. And as we know, by the way, historically in the year 69, the year one year before the temple was destroyed, uh, it's known as the year of four emperors because they were just filtering, going through them one after another. And Vespasian became the emperor and he didn't actually complete the siege. His son uh, Titus completed the siege. He went back to be, uh, to be emperor and he was emperor from 69 to 79. I think he died in 79. And obviously... Vespasian is so impressed with this guy who was telling him you're a king and a second later they, got, they come with the announcement that you became emperor and he says to him I want, I want to pay you back so I, I let you make some requests and he makes three very interesting requests number one he says there was this one sage Rabbi, Rabbi Tzadok who got very sick praying because he saw the end was near and the doctors to heal him and then he said spare number when you destroy the city when you destroy the temple you destroy the Jewish communities I want you to spare two things. Number one, the family of King David, which is the family of the Nassim, the family of, of, the, of, of the presidents, we're known as the presidents. And number two, the sages in Yavne. Yavne is where the Sanhedrin had moved to. Spare the Sanhedrin. So those are his three requests. And he granted them those requests, and of course, the rest is history. Uh, they destroyed the temple, destroyed, killed thousands, but they left the family... Of of, the, of 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 Hillel, Hillel's family, which is the family of King David, which is the family of the, pres- of the presidents, the Nesim, and the scholars in Yavne. And from that, they were able to rebuild the Jewish people uh, very, very quickly, actually. 
That's the story. And of course, the question that we have is, okay, the guy, the guy said, make a request, you should have said, spare Jerusalem, right? Uh, but obviously, this is one of the great instances of, of, of foresight uh, that Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai had, that he, he knew it was over. You know, he knew that this revolt was stamped out, and they were systematically destroying city after city, and Jerusalem was obviously the prize jewel, and there was no way he was going to convince the Romans to spare Jerusalem. They've had a protracted siege for many months already. There's no way he's... But what's going to be when the Jews are beaten, humiliated, taken to prisoner, right? Many of them slaughtered. What's going to be? We have to rebuild rebuild the Jewish people. How are we going to do that? We have to have the family of King David, which is the, you know, the, 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 the most illustrious family of, of the Jewish people. They have to stay alive. Number two... The rabbinic leadership has to stay alive, the Sanhedrin, because they are going to have to navigate, uh, uh, lead the navigation through uh, the ashes to rebuild the Jewish people. And indeed, we know historically that uh, the sages in Yavne and the decisions that they made led to a, a tremendous revival, rebirth of the people very, very quickly. Did he need King David's family to stay alive because he knew that there was that's right. So this is the family of royalty. This is the Davidic line, and these were uh, these were the religious and, and and political leaders of the Jewish people for hundreds of years. I think we have uh, we have uh, we know the names of the Nisim. The Nisim was the we call the president, which is like the official political representative of the people. Was always from the fa- from the family of King David, from the house of Hillel. In the house of David, house of Hill, obviously from the tribe of, of Judah. And yes. that continued uninterrupted for hundreds and hundreds of years, five hundred years, from Hillel till till uh, you know, till till we stopped having to see him. What's and even by the way what about today? Do we have today people contemporary who can trace their lineage genealogy? Uh, we might have. We might have. Um, I think the easier way to do it would probably to not trace your your path all the way back, but rather to trace your path back to someone who traced his path back. Yeah. That's usually gonna be easier. I don't know for sure. I'm sure there's probably hundreds of thousands of Jews that are part of that family. Um, <coughs> I, I don't know. I don't know for sure if people. Uh, I, I assume I'm not from that family. No, like official tradition now about. Well, well, once. I don't know. One of my ancestors was King David, though. Yeah. Well, the point is, is that I would bet that everyone in the room has an ancestor from King David, but that's the point. The point is it has to be a direct answer, be father, son, father, son, because you know if once we deal with you know the the, the, the maternal line, every Jew probably descends from that. Uh, but I, I would assume there's a lots and lots of people today that are sense, direct descendants of King David. Um, but I, we don't know who that is because we don't have that as an official position. And even in Babylon, by the way, even when the even the Jews of Babylon had what's called the Reish Delusa, which means the head of the diaspora which was also an official recognized position by the Babylonians, by the local populace, but also was kind of the de facto leader of the people, had to be from the house of David. Either way, what does this story have to do with our discussion? This story demonstrates what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saw when he saw the general who's laying siege to Jerusalem. What did he see, and what would we have seen? We look and we see a general. You count the stars, right? Right. You look at the, 
mil- military whatever insignias and logos. You, this is a general. That's what we see. And what does Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai see? He sees a king. How does he see a king and we see a general? Exactly. So to him, the fact that there is a verse that says mm-hmm. Jerusalem will fall mm-hmm. with, in the hands of the, of, of the mighty, mm-hmm. and he understood that to be that Jerusalem will fall to a king, mm-hmm. he sees a king. That's what he sees. Yeah. And everyone else is like, oh, how do you see a king? And I was like, whoa, well, wait, wait, slow down here. This is, a, you know, this is a general. This is not an emperor. But to him, what does he see? And it wasn't like he was trying to make he wasn't making a joke here. It wasn't like trying to be cute. But this is the Talmud kind of giving us insight into what he saw. He actually saw a king. To him, the reality of the spiritual superseded and trumped the reality of what his eyes told him. You know, your eyes are signals, but your eyes are not always that accurate, right? Sometimes you take your glasses off and you're like, oh, they're not so accurate, right? Your eyes are signals, but to us, they're signals of reality. To Rabbi Yochum, exactly the signals of, 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 a, of, a, of a certain physical nature. But reality was the spiritual. When he looked at people, he saw a soul, not a body. It doesn't mean he physically saw a soul. It just means, right? It means that what did he perceive? Your eyes only show you bodies. Which is, by the way, why it's so difficult to see souls. Because you're, you, we for sure see bodies. We don't see souls, Right? But that's not the only method of, of interaction you have with the world. Your mind is also a very powerful, you know, interaction method, uh, you know, tool that you could use. And if your reality tells you that the whatever what Scripture says is real, your eyes tell you something else that disagrees as an in conflict with that reality. What do you actually see? Your eyes show you a general, your mind shows you a king. What do you see? You see a king from fear of Yochum. That's what you see. Right? What do you, how do you address the person? You know, sometimes you have someone with like a name that's kind of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of hard. Like, you know, you, 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 how do you address them? Like, is this a, a, a sir or a ma'am? Or someone's on the phone, like you're talking to a representative and you're not sure, like, is this. You're pretty sure this is ma'am, but they're, you know, but, you, right? You have that, yeah. right? So we have that as well. Like, your eyes, your physical tools of interaction show you someone with the insignias and the logos of a general. You know Jerusalem will fall with a king. This is a king. You address him as what he is. He's a king. For us, you know, because our reality is mostly what we see, right? That's what we're going to use to determine what is real for us. We would say, you're a general. That's what we would say. Ryokan Mazakai, thankfully for us, he had a heightened reality. What would have happened? Let's just do the math here. What would have happened if Ryokan Mazakai did not have that sense of reality? He would have said, Peace be owed to you, O general. Fine, how you doing, right? And the guy comes, oh, I'm an emperor now. I'm out, right? He wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to save the house of David, the house of Hillel. He wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to save Rabbi Tzadok, who was the sage who was very ill. And he wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to save Sanhedrin. You know where we would be today if we didn't have Sanhedrin? 
not. We wouldn't be, that's right, exactly. We would certainly not be in this room. So in a weird way, like uh, the great what-ifs of history, right? In a weird way, if not for Yohanan Zakkai achieving level 7 of Amuna, we wouldn't be here today. Judaism wouldn't exist today. Isn't that interesting? Because if we didn't have Sanhedrin to rebuild the, Jew- the people afterwards, we would have disappeared. Or what happens when a people is so thoroughly slaughtered by Romans? You know what happens? They disappear. And there's a very long list in history of people that were captured by the Romans, conquered by the Romans, destroyed and utterly destroyed by the Romans, and disappeared. What did it take to be on the Sanhedrin? What qualified they destroyed Congress, okay. we'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, this is a good question. It's, it's a little bit of a longer discussion. But when we look about what happened at the af- what happened before and what happened after, I'll give you the quick, quick synopsis. There's a class that we gave in this room, I think, about that whole time period. So uh, we, we maybe, well, we'll send the link out to, if I can find that class. Um, but the people were in, in grave danger not only from uh, external threats but also internal threats. There, were, there was a very, a very divisive time before the temple was destroyed. You had different groups, the Sadducees, the ancient uh, Hellenists. You had uh, the Essenes. You had the Jewish Christians. You had all these different groups and the people are getting more and more splintered and the mission, the, the, the whole kind of Jewish sensibilities that were always present were disappearing or were getting diluted. Temples destroyed. All of those other factions either completely splinter off into their own religion or disappear. Mm-hmm. All you have left is the Pharisees or kind of the mainstream Jews and leadership, the only leadership you have, you have no kings anymore, you have no high priests, you have no, uh, you, you, don't have, you don't have no political representative. All you ha- representation, all you have is the Torah representation in the form of the Sanhedrin. And thus, they kind of realigned, kind of bring the Jews back on track. We'd gotten so far off track, and the tragedy of the temple being destroyed and the Romans sacking everything um, enabled kind of to winnow the field, so to speak, in a weird way, to bring us back to the track that we have to be on uh, as a nation. So, Did you have to be a major scholar? Oh, yeah, of course. So the personal qualification to be in the Sanhedrin to be a great scholar... You had to be someone who's proficient in all the languages that people talk about. You had to be of, 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 of good health as well. You had to know all of Torah, which, you're like, yeah, good health, all of Torah. You know, comma, all of Torah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that, but these, are, these were the people. And there's a lot of, for example, laws that we have today that were enacted then, right in the aftermath of the temple being destroyed, to kind of, uh, to you know, to suture up or to you know, to 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 to, to deal with the trauma, to be a trauma unit for for a nation that's that's being beaten down. And you look at the next, let's say, seventy years after the temple's destroyed, or even fifty years, fifty-five years, from let's say the year seventy to the year one fifteen of the Common Era, and you look at what happened, and you see the pivotal role that Sanhedrin played, and the rabbis played to enable that to be rebuilt so fast and so to so to, you know to such. Um, Ironically, the people were even stronger than they were beforehand. Uh, Just the level of consciousness there. I mean, in in Judaism, do we teach that to the, I mean, to be proficient as in 
I'll use the comparison of Eastern philosophy where they teach the aura, knowing when you, you know, like you spoke. I, I'm seeing when you're telling me how this rabbi saw this general. I mean, was he seeing an aura around him? No, so, so that, the, the point is, is the point is his, his is. but, but, but that, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's not going to be something you could see with your eyeballs. Right, your eyeballs are tools to see the physical world. Mm-hmm. He chose to interpret what he saw through the lens of scripture instead of just accepting it. Well, it's not. I don't think he chose. I, I would amend that to that. He saw the world through a different lens. Yes, he was able to see if there was an obstacle in his way. His eyes were still there, working and interacting with the physical world, but that was not the lens with what he used to judge who people were. I mean, I've been reading Area Kaplan's. Yes. Uh, Jewish meditation, for instance, and I mean, do we incorporate this in our life? Yeah, well, I I, I stand by what Ari Kaplan says. You do? I do. I'm not going to argue with you. Anything he says, yeah. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's like he's fantastic. And I, A R Y H Kaplan. K A P L A N. Jewish missionaries, right? Yeah, he was a remarkable guy. He unfortunately died really young. Yeah. He died really young. He was a, a scientist and a scholar and a very prolific, voluminous author. I sat under his uh, cousin, so it's, uh, Gershon Winkler, which is a very strange rabbi. But, um, but, yeah, but yeah, so I, that, that's... that's he, uh, I really appreciated the book. It's wonderful. And so we can incorporate this... I, I stand by whatever Rabbi Ari Kaplan said. I, I don't know if this is the same point that we're trying to say here. This is kind of a little bit, I think, a little bit more high level what we're talking about. I don't think that Rabbi Yochum was seeing auras of any sort. Um, but if what we're talking, it means if if a way to kind of just sum up what we're saying, I'm, I'm, and I'm that is, that I could develop a consciousness where I have less, you know, run across less issues in my life. That I mean, would be recognize nice. Recognize them, you know. Ahead of time. But but I, th- I think the, the the point the critical point that we're trying to say here is that what is going to determine what is real for us okay. is it going to be merely our physical signals, or can it be also spiritual signals as well? For Yochanan Zakai, he had a conflict with his spiritual and his physical signal. His physical signal, his eyeballs, they showed him a general. However, to him that wasn't enough to determine who this person was because the spiritual signal showed him a king. Now, of course, physically he didn't see a king. Physically he saw a general. But because he had other signals and those signals were even stronger, therefore he addressed them with what he, you know, what, you know it's like when you have a guy, someone on the phone, it's like the name is a male and they talk like a male, but there was something else that kind of made you think that maybe you would follow the stronger signal. He followed the stronger signal, and therefore the stronger signal was that this is a king, and he called him a king. And I just think that it's interesting for us today, sitting here, and, not, and, and just uh, kind of just being in awe of how this decision to follow, or, or this reality of having a spiritual signal being more powerful then the physical signal, how that affected history. If he didn't have that, odds are we wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't say odds are. I say I'm willing to say confidently we wouldn't be here today. If the Sanhedrin was destroyed, if the Jewish leadership 
in the form of that House of Hill was destroyed, I don't know if we'd be able to get up from the ashes. And, or if we did, I don't know how viable and, uh, and that would be. Either way, we'd be living in a radically different world today. Um, and that's very interesting. I, I don't know what to do with it. I think it's interesting. Um, but that's something... Uh, th- th- you know, this level kind of... I, I, I think it's beyond us. Uh, I think f- this level, I think I would say, is, is theoretical for us. Um, and the reason why, going back to what we spoke about last week, right? What happens when someone has food today but doesn't have food tomorrow? Right? So if he has real faith, the Talmud says, he's not worried. Go to sleep, no problem. Not have any scary night, you know, nightmares. Totally fine. To us, you know, a temple is destroyed at that level. Seized, right? Who was there before the temple was destroyed? Rehoboam and Zachary. He was kind of one of the last people that had this level of faith. Where the reality of God, the reality of the spiritual was more real than the reality of the physical. So the empty cupboard, the empty pantry, was less real than the fact that God loves you and wants to feed you. That was the reality that governed their outlook. And the Talmud tells us that this, this, this level ceased, you know, when the temple was destroyed. So if you ask me the question, is it possible for someone today to achieve that? I would say no. But, What's interesting, I, I point this out again, is that for us, we have to be very grateful for people that had that, because if Rehoboam comes out and I did not have that, odds are we wouldn't be here today talking about this. Okay, so if we didn't even talk about level seven, you know, level six, level six I think, is where we're capped at to try to make par, parity between our physical and our spiritual signals. But if level seven is beyond us, and that is where the spiritual signals, they trump, they overcome. Trump is a bad word to use today, right? They supersede. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they are greater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they cruise beyond us. Very good, very good. Um, if they are, you know, you know. So what else? What else could be eight, nine, and ten? Like, how can we have anything greater than a reality where the spirituality is so much stronger and over overwhelms the physical? The answer is prophecy. One step up is prophecy, right? Where the physical reality not only is it trumped by the spiritual reality, but it's suppressed to a degree that the soul is capable of communicating with God. And indeed, I think our perception of prophecy is actually distorted. How so? We think that prophecy is where God communicates to you signal to man, right? It's the opposite of Houston to a spaceship, right? It's the opposite. It's a spaceship to us. That's what we think of prophecy, correct? Right? That's what we think. Don't say correct, right? Because you know, <laughs> I'm setting you up here, right? But that's what we think, right? We think that the Almighty says, oh, I want to communicate with man. This is a man who's worthy of it. Let's give him a communication. When in reality, 
right? What does that mean? That means that the spiritual communications are kind of few and far between. As if the Almighty is not always communicating with us. If you remember, a couple of weeks back we spoke about the dynamic of body and soul. If you were to isolate the soul, right, and you're able to shed any influence of the body off the soul, if the Yetzirah was not a factor whatsoever, the soul would right away have prophecy. How do we know? Talmud says so. Talmud says the soul in utero doesn't have the Yetzirah, and it's, it's that talking to God. There's a communication the soul has with God. Prophecy. And the answer is, is that prophecy is a very natural state of soul communication. It's very natural. And it's not rare, it's not unique. The only reason why we don't have prophecy is because there are inhibitors to the prophecy. Point being is that our body is going to shield us, in a, in a negative sense, from prophecy. But theoretically, if we remove the shield, if we are able to isolate the soul and rid ourselves of any influence of the Yetzirah, of, their, of our body suddenly is not being a blocker to prophecy, well, then you'd have prophecy right away. So it's not like prophecy is the Almighty kind of actively giving us communication. Rather, prophecy is us removing the thing that's blocking the communication from coming through. And once you remove it, well, then it comes through. But why don't we have prophecy? Because we have a reality. That's our physical reality that suppresses it. Then even if we have a spiritual reality that is greater than the physical reality, assuming we can do that, right? We have Rabbi Yochanan Mitzakar. Rabbi Yochanan was not a prophet. He was not level of prophecy. And you know what? Prophecy ended about 400 years before that. We have a time stamp in history where prophecy ended. Right? Because there became a point in time where even the great people of yesteryear, even Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, was not able to achieve the level where the physical was so suppressed that it was no longer inhibited of prophecy. But that would be level 8. And... You know, we, you know, the question is always, well, why not? Why can someone not suppress their reality to that degree? You know, why can, why can we have prophecy? Let's just suppress our physical and we'll have prophecy, right? So, but we can't. Why not? Well, why did prophecy end? So I have two theories. Number one, prophecy is a boon for the people at large. If you're a prophet, you're a very valuable friend to have. Because you're able to know things that you can't see, correct? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be valuable? Sure. You know, uh, uh, the prophet Samuel was where people went when they lost their animals, mm-hmm. for example. And for prophecy to be in existence, you have to have not only a righteous individual who is the receptacle of the prophecy, but you also have to have a righteous community that is worthy of having such communication. And with the principle of a rapidly, not rapidly, but a, a, a consistently uh, depreciating or degenerating spiritual nature of, 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 of a generation, the further we get from Sinai, 
the more distant we have, we, we you know we have distanced ourselves from that reality. The difficult, more difficult it is for us to kind of live that that lifestyle and that you know have that sensibility. The less meritorious we are as a generation, and therefore the less worthy we are for having such a person in our midst. Uh, and therefore, prophecy is not possible for us. Or potentially, another another way to see this is that yes, we have our spiritual intent in the form of our soul. That if we were to remove the inhibitors, the soul would be exposed. But our souls are on low levels. Therefore, the levels of prophecy we are incapable of reaching. But prophecy, Maimonides tells us that you know how many different levels of intelligence are there. How many? Anyone wants to venture a guess? Seven. Well, the answer is I don't know. There's many levels, right? <laughs> right. If how do we measure intelligence? Sorry, <laughs> I, I don't know. Right? You measure it. Let's let's we use. You searching. Well, we, we, it's, a, it's a good question. We don't really know how to measure intelligence. There are a lot of different ways to measure intelligence because there's not really one. Yeah, modern educational philosophy breaks it down to seven different types. Oh, okay, but different types, but different levels. Yeah, Means if you let's say have use use the intel the IQ for example as a measure, mm-hmm. so every number is a different measure, right? <clears throat> But let's say you have two people, of both of them are 105, right? Above average intelligence. Both of them are 105. Are they exactly equal intelligence? Is it up 105.01? Is that possible? I mean, there's many, many, many different levels of intelligence, correct? That's the same amount of prophecy, uh, levels of prophecies that there are, said Maimonides. Just like there's levels of intelligence, there's levels of prophecy. So even though there's certain levels of prophecy that are beyond us, Right, the form of God giving us communication and like saying what's going to be, who's going to win the election, right, or where the guy's lost animals are. That level of prophecy is gone, but there are levels of prophecy that are on lower levels that are even accessible to people today. Not premonition. It's just it's communication. It's not direct communication as in the form of instruction. This is what you do. You know, you're the leader of the people, and when they have a question, should they go into war? Should they not go into war? Let God tell us. Like that, we don't have. But having a certain a certain, a certain uh, divine communication that's on a much lower level. Think of a divine echo. You, that we could still get. You know, uh, we talked about last... I don't know if I mentioned it here. Oh, did I mention it here? About the, the grass half part? Mm-hmm. I did mention that. Uh, you know, where you have someone studying and he comes to a very obscure and esoteric part of Talmud and there's grasshopper's anatomy who, and then the grasshopper pops on into, on into Gomorrah. Like, that, that's happened to someone who's alive today. That's happened, you know, and, and that's, would that happen to me when I get that? I assure you it won't. I assure you. But that's the way of God kind of treating people in the degree with which they deserve to be treated. And that's kind of, that prophecy. Is it a prophecy? No. But is it divine, divine communication? Yeah, it is. It's, it's not, I'm saying it's, it's an echo, it's a faint echo of the prophecies of yesteryear, but it's a certain degree of someone clearing away, you know, it's like clearing away the, um, the antenna, right? Or you have a solar panel, right? But it's covered in sand. You clear it away to receive the rays. You have an antenna, but it's, it's in a box, which is in another box, which is in a million other boxes. You take off the boxes and the antenna is able to communicate. So maybe our antennas are not powerful enough to communicate with galaxies far, far away, but maybe communicate with someone on the other end of the world or someone on the International Space Station. Those lower levels of communication maybe is still possible. But it's predicated on our changing of this reality. 
clearing away the inhibitors and bringing us to exposing our capacities that we have already. And, by the way, what is Olam Haba? Olam Haba, that term. World to come. What, what, what does that word look like? Anybody knows? It's supposed to be a better world. Okay, better. It's flipped back up. So it's exactly. So this is the reality. It means when we are, there's a suppression of the physical reality, what does that now bring to the forefront? Spiritual reality. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a flipping, it's exactly like, like dancing, taking everything and turning it upside down. Which, incidentally, we would say that this world's upside down and that world's straight. But we think that that world would upside down because that's our perspective, right? It's all, it's all about your... If someone's walking on the ceiling now, we'd say he's upside down. But he looks that up, so we're all upside down, right? Who's really upside down? Depends who you ask, right? But he really is, right? Right? Oh, well, how would you know, right? Well, what, logically, we could prove that he is, Right? Or maybe we can't. Why? Because if he goes outside, he's going to fall down, right? <laughs> he's in trouble. <laughs> but the Talmud tells us that the Olam Abba, there's no, you know, there's no eating, no drinking, no sleeping. Well, what does that mean? No sleeping? I like naps. I like food. Right? But everything that we like about food, nap, right, those are all symptoms of a physical existence. Olam Abba is a world where it's, it's, it's a spiritual world. You may have a physical orientation as well, just like today, we may have a spiritual orientation as well, but that's not who we are. We, I see bodies. I don't see souls. But your soul is much more than your bodies. You know why? Because when your body starts decomposing under seven feet of, six feet of dirt, your soul is as strong as it ever was. And it's even stronger because it's unsuppressed. It's untethered. But why do I see only bodies? That's the nature of this world. In the, ne- in the next world, you may have bodies as well, but we don't see the bodies. We see the souls. The souls now take the forefront. And the fact that someone has a body is something to remind them, right? I thought to you, I said, oh, you have a soul, right? Whoa, whoa, I get reminded of something new. Next world, they say, you have a body. Whoa, I forgot, totally forgot about that, right? You're not eating, you're not drinking, you're not sleeping. You're not involved with your body at all. It's, it's just, it's totally ancillary to your reality. Just like our soul today is something we have to be reminded of every you know, uh, to think about it. We have to kind of remind ourselves or else we need to forget about it. Someone can live their whole lives in this world and not even think about their soul once. Someone can live their whole lives in the next world and not even think about their body once. It's the exact opposite. The insight of Judaism is that we could get to Olam Abba here. That's the eighth level, right? We're suppressing the body with mitzvahs. We're weakening its influence. And what else, what are we exposing? Every time you weaken your body, you empower your soul. They're directly correlated. You weaken your body, you empower your soul. The more you do that, the more soulful you become, and the, the less your body has an influence over you. And Rabbi Yochum Mezaka is someone who did that to such a degree that the fact that he saw someone with his eyes, the physical interactions didn't mean so much to him. The spiritual interactions meant so much more. That's what he did, and that's why his reality changed. But that's what Allah Abai is. Allah Abai is just us being catapulted to that level. And, you know, if, if you're like, I still kind of like, you know, I like having a good steak. You know, it's still, it's still appeal. Yeah, it's very hard for us 
to get excited, you know. We don't salivate over our soul, right? We don't. It's cause, and, and, and to us, but we do salivate over, over our body and, and the things that appeal to it. And therefore, the thought of that being taken away is like, no, don't take it away from us, right? It's, we want to eat and drink and sleep. Right? That's because, once again, these are symptoms of our condition. We're all sickos. So we're sick now. What did I say last time? <laughs> right? We're insane. We're temporary. We're insane. Right? That, but that's what it is, really. It, it is because it's all a fallacy. It's, you know, it's all a sham. Sorry? How do we look at your body to the soul? Oh, so that's what the Torah is. The Torah, all the mitzvahs in the Torah, every restriction of the Torah is a restriction against 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 your body. Every what single one. Eat, yeah, now but what's interesting is that we don't say that the body is evil. Right? The body is not evil, but it's, it becomes evil when it becomes its own priority. Right? Um, you know, um, the fact that we the body could be a mitzvah. It means when we when we eat, we say a blessing, correct? Mm-hmm. Why? It's because we're showing that eating is a mitzvah. But wait a minute: is eating a mitzvah or is eating a symptom of our of our condition? The answer is it depends. If we make eating a mitzvah, then it's a mitzvah, right? You can have two people eating the same food, one's doing a mitzvah, and one's sitting. How's that possible? The person who's doing this because he knows he needs fuel towards his grand mission of tikkun olam, is doing a mitzvah. And that's why we make a blessing. We link spiritual, spiritual realities to every physical activity because a physical activity can be a mitzvah as well. But if we make our physical reality, we, we make it on an altar onto its own. This is its own. This is an end onto its own. If this has value by itself isolated, well, then what are we doing? Right, we're, we're giving credence to this other reality, right? So that's... Go ahead. Um, you know, I've learned Masar from uh, your brother the way I understood too is also perfecting the, the character traits helps because everything's sort of on a spectrum. So it balances it up and increases our sort of our, our antenna. Oh, yeah, so, of course. So and that's a mitzvah. Eight times in the Torah it says walk in the way of ways of God, which is a mitzvah to have good midos, so it's beyond good character. Just, you know, Doing the mitzvah, but also working on yourself. And, and by the way, um, I think I might have mentioned this last week that this is how you perfect your character strength. This is one of the ways to do it. I mean, the only reason someone would get angry is because they don't believe in God. It's the only reason why someone would get angry. Only reason. Because you don't have faith. It's the only reason. Because if you had faith, how could you possibly get angry? I made the mistake of telling Elsie that. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's holding you accountable. Huh? Oh, yeah, and she brings it back up now. You know, so if someone, you know, if someone is arrogant, the only reason why someone can be arrogant is because they don't have faith. If someone is not kind, how could you not be kind? Because you don't have faith. I mean, faith in our sense, right? Not in the, in the theoretical sense, right? Faith in our, in our perspective. So yes, this is all correlated to it. I mean, this is this is the kind of the a universal theory of, of of Judaism, right? It's everything. It's everything coming together. This is what it's all about. And that's what Almabai is like. What those are the levels be on the week. So in the, in the next class, you're going to teach us how to do this, right? So we're going to wrap it up. <laughs> 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 I had to have prophecy. Well, and that, if you remember, we talked about time travel, right? Yeah, that's all we want. <laughs> yeah. Someone who's able to live in this world with the same dynamic as Olam Haba brings us to is someone who will have prophecy. Simple. 
Um, I think we'll have to leave uh, 9 and 10 for, for, for next week. Um, I have to bring this up. There's a movie, Something Pal, about a rather crass guy who's cursed by the ability to see other people's souls. Shallow hell. Shallow hell. So if you're looking at somebody, for example, he's looking at a 400-pound woman, he doesn't see a 400-pound woman. He sees her soul, which is a beautiful, slim girl who falls in love with. It's a comedy. But it, it's kind of interesting. He sees people as they are. Because they truly are. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, and I, I don't know, would that, be, would, that be a, would that be a curse or would that be a blessing? Well, it was a curse to the way he had lived before. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that it's not, it's not so easy to do that. Um, either way, ne- next week, just the uh, uh, promo for next week, we're going to learn how to time travel. So if you want to learn how to time travel, all you got to do is got to get level 10. Get level 10, you have, you have time travel. Simple. Very easy. No problem. What else could you possibly want to do next Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> and it's no football game, right? So, um, but either way, I just want to quickly recap what we did today. And we kind of, I think we really expanded... Uh, the horizons of Amuna for, for ourselves. You know, we had level 6, 7, and 8, I believe. Um, we're in 6 is going to be where the students of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai are encouraged to try to achieve parity, right? Amidst a sin, a potential to sin, is a red light and a cop behind you, and no one does that, right? If someone really had that, they would, why would they ever sin? They would never do it. It's silly, right? You would never do that. Um... Level seven is, is Rabbi Yochanan himself. Like, he is someone who, it's not like uh, there was parity between these spiritual and, and, and physical worlds. The physical world was not a factor almost. You know, it, it, the, the spiritual signal totally superseded the, the physical one. Level eight is prophecy. How do you have prophecy? Prophecy is just exposing yourself to what the Almighty wants to give you anyhow. Of course, there's many levels. By the way, this is these this level eight to really be level eight through eight thousand. Because level level layers of prophecy like those levels of intellect, many, 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 many. But the the constant is where the man is going to change. Man is in humanity. Mankind is going to change the dynamic of their reality. Right? You you start off physical dominant and spiritual is totally just there. Like it's theoretical. You live your whole life not thinking about it. And then you can, or you can expose it. You expose it, and you change the dynamic, and voila, you're able to pick up spiritual communications, because now you're a spiritual entity. Uh, levels 9 and 10 are going to be, levels 9 is what Abraham achieved, and level 10 is what Moses achieved. Right? The two greatest heroes in, in, in Jewish history, and we'll kind of work through um, how they got there. And then the question everyone wants to know, how do we do this? Like, what do we do? Yeah, and the simple answer we get here today is Torah. That's a simple answer. Um, we'll try to break it down a little bit more, you know, first uh, initially on the, on the big picture and then kind of what it means for us. Is there uh, like a promotion period? It's not, I'm sorry, promotion process? Well, you hear by promoters from three to four. Just well, like, like, say, the Masons do, right? No, 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 no. We don't do that. Um, <laughs> you get the beans. Uh, well, I'll be honest with you, Vitaly, I made up these 10 levels myself from what I found. It's possible there's more levels.
Yeah, I just we're just doing research with the source material, right? So, I, yeah, but, but we're trying to logically follow the steps of progression through faith. And this is what we found. Uh, is it possible that there's more levels? It's possible. Um, I'm just, you know, and possible that each level is multiple levels, right? But it's, but this is internal. This is who you are, right? This is not just something that we don't want to limit it to like a pin that you get, you know, or another little, little, little chacha that hangs from your uniform. I have a question. During some of these levels, I was hoping on that. that. Well, well, God doesn't change, right? That's the thing, is that God does not change. So only we can change. We can change. And when we change, our relationship with God changes as well. It's the power Oh, yeah. It's we change by allowing ourselves to be receptive to prophecy. Yeah, like we expose our capacity that we always had.